Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ernst & Young, LLP. We believe a better working world is achieved by helping our clients reduce risk, increase efficiency, and lower cost, while positively transforming the physical environments in which we work and live. Our teams help improve the corporate real estate function and assets under management through technology, operational improvement, and workplace strategy. EY, building a better working world. Connect with us to learn more about our real estate and workplace capabilities. Hi, my name is Kendra Nichols. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of What's Next. Today, I'm joined by Rick Williams, head of consultancy for the Business Disability Forum in the UK. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about how to make the workplace more accessible and inclusive. Thank you for joining me today, Rick. Would you care to tell our listeners about yourself, your background, and the Business Disability Forum? Okay, so uh, I've been working in the field of disability for about 20 years. Before that, I worked as a civil servant. Um, In the 20 years I've been working around disability, I've been advising businesses about the issues and how they interact with disability. So that can be everything from training to inclusive design, culture change, uh, awareness, those sorts of issues. I was also involved in research called the Click Away Pound, which some people may have heard of, which is all about what happens when disabled people come across a website they can't use particularly well and the impact on business around that. I've been running the Business Disability Forum's consultancy unit now for two and a half years. The Business Disability Forum is an organisation based in the UK, works globally, and it is a membership organisation. Its members are supported uh, by the forum and each other to try and develop and improve the way they deal with disabled people and the issues around it, but from a business perspective. So it provides all sorts of um, training, consultancy, guidance, lots of information on its website and so on. But it is essentially member-owned and member-driven. Awesome. Thank you. So currently we're living through a global pandemic and the great resignation. Many businesses have been struggling to retain or even onboard new staff. This has led some organizations to look for talent pools that were once ignored, such as those with disabilities. Disabled people make up 15% of the world's population, or a billion people. However, too often people with disabilities are unable to access goods, services, and employment opportunities due to inaccessible built environments or unwillingness to make reasonable adjustments. I think we can both agree that the pandemic has kind of acted as a catalyst for many changes in our society and work lives, and there's a renewed interest in DEI and ESG initiatives. However, with a global spending power estimated to be the size of China, why are accommodations for those with disabilities only now becoming more prevalent? Wow. <laughs> Sorry, that That's was a very, lot. That was <laughs> a tough question um, because there's no one answer to this at all. A lot of it is, in my view, just lack of awareness, mm-hmm. uh, lack of understanding of the issues. And at a business level, I think a lack of understanding of the business implications. And it's very difficult to get organizations to engage with this issue. Now, some are, clearly, but a lot aren't. They don't see it as even on their priority list. And I I suspect there is partly that. I think also there is an attitudinal issue around disability, where traditionally people have thought about disability as as a bit of a niche issue quite small numbers, and it's all about wheelchairs and and guide dogs, assistance dogs, old-fashioned ideas, in a sense, based on the way we were all brought up. 
So I think it, there's a combination of things and none of it is straightforward. And demonstrating the business case is quite difficult. While we might talk about things like disabled people have the spending power of the Chinese population, uh, that doesn't really mean much on a specific business in a specific way. So trying to develop business cases that are based on really directly relevant issues is quite challenging as well. I've been reading a lot about how creating spaces that are inclusive and accessible for people with disabilities can help businesses attract and retain employees and customers, become more sustainable, increase efficiency and productivity, and reduce costs of adjustments, and enhance a business reputation within the community. I think these are all great reasons for businesses to try to make their workplaces more accessible. Why is it, I guess, why isn't that enough of a business case for them to do stuff? Well, I think part of it is a lack of understanding of the issue. So if you look, for example, in the UK, America, Canada, Europe, they've all got quite detailed standard on the built environment. Mm -hmm. Most of them, yeah, there's a lot of similarity, but most of them are not really sort of actively engaged with by a lot of people, but they are quite narrow. And I don't think you can look at the built environment side of workplace as simply about the building. It's much more than that. It's about how people interact with that space, how they get to that space, what information is available about that space, what happens to people in that space. So what you, what you find is that or even where organizations design an accessible building or as close as you can get to accessible, what you can't do is then say, well, that's it, because it's how you run the building, how you manage the building, how your front of house staff behave, uh, what happens in the common service areas, those sorts of things are all issues around the workplace, but they're outside the design. So what happens is you get gaps and those gaps then create the barriers. And there is a lot of misunderstanding about this. So we get a lot of inquiries as well, what do I need to do to have an accessible building? Our first reaction is, well, the first thing you need to understand is there is no such thing as a fully accessible building. It can't be done that way because one person's access need will be another person's barrier. Solving one problem may create another. So very simple example, as a blind person, I find open, open spaces and blended curbs very difficult indeed. I will avoid them if I can, simply because you lose orientation, you lose uh, all your touch points of recognition about where you are things like that. Whereas a wheelchair user, someone with a walking limitation, will find that space probably very accessible, whereas I would find it inaccessible and avoid it. So it's understanding how you do this at two levels. The first level is build it to be as accessible as it can be, and then manage it to make it accessible for those that still have requirements past that stage. So do you believe the first step should be that there needs just to be a better understanding of what being disabled means and that it's there's it's a huge variety. There's people with mental disabilities, physical disabilities, um, learning disabilities. We just need a better understanding of that even before we tackle the whole issue of this inclusive environment. Actually, I'm going to say something startling. No, I don't think you do. Not in this area. What you need to understand is the effect of people's conditions or disabilities. The name of the conditions should be avoided because they will mislead you. People will stereotype 
and actually then make assumptions about what people might need on the basis of their condition. It doesn't work like that. Virtually every condition that I've ever come across, the impact of that condition varies massively depending on the severity, which will vary hugely, the individual, how confident and competent they are, and what they're trying to do at any given time. What designers and building managers need to understand is what is the effect of a condition? I can then work out what the barriers are and remove them. If you just use a list of conditions, you will get misled. So we have a helpline. One of the most common questions that we get on our helpline is, what do I need to do to make sure my building is accessible for blind people? And our fairly standard answer, I've got no idea, show us your blind person. <laughs> because it is about context and effect. So as a blind person, I'm reasonably confident and can navigate, once I've learned routes, can navigate pretty well. Some people I know who are blind could never do that. Other people I know would be much better than me. Thinking about it as a condition gets in the way. Think about effect, design out the barriers through effect. So you said that it's hard, you, you really can't have one size fit all, but is there a way that we can kind of standardize a consistent approach to accessibility? Is there a framework that we can try to globally build? Uh, well, that's the big question. So there's a couple of challenges first. So the problem we're trying to get global consistency, and we're working on this with, with three or four very big companies, global companies, you have a different legal framework. So in America, you have the ADA. In the UK, you've got the Equality Act. And everyone has their own sort of variation of that legislation with different levels of requirement, obligation, and everything else. You also have different standards and guidance, especially around the built environment. So in the UK, we have British standards. In Europe, they've just got their own standard. You have the international standard ISO. America have its own standard. And they're all slightly different and some substantially different. And the last challenge you've got is what we call the cultural dissonance, where different cultures think about disability in different ways. You put those three together, you're going to find it almost impossible to come up with a straightforward solution of gaining consistency. Because you can see that enforcement guidance and attitudes vary hugely between countries. And that is the challenge that you have to try and deal with uh, in this space when you're trying to develop a consistent approach for a global company. When you're talking about different models, really, of how people look at disabilities, are you referencing the charity model, medical model, and the social model? Yeah, very much so. Um, so the charity model, you know, it's about people looking after, protecting, and feeling sympathy for disabled people. And in some countries, that's pretty much baked into the cultural reference points, and even in law in some places. The medical model, it's all about the individual. The individual, in effect, is, quotes broken. We need to fix the individual so that they can work, engage, access, that sort of thing. But the social model says, no, what you do is you identify what's stopping someone engaging, working, being socially active, and you get rid of those barriers. You come at it from the other end, if you like, of the, the journey. What's getting in the way? Let's get rid of that. And then what's accessible just means there are no barriers. So thus far, as you've been consulting global companies, would you say that how disabilities are looked at globally, like, is that one of the biggest problems that you face is having to address these social models of how people look at disability? Yeah, I mean, a lot of, I mean, you can design the overall approach in a fairly straightforward way. 
So our general approach at the moment is use the ISO standard, but have local flexibilities to deal with some of the issues that won't work because of ISO, or if you've got a higher standard locally, use that. Now that's quite easy to say, it's a lot harder to do. And attitudes amongst people in organizations do vary hugely. Uh, it's easier to work in some cultures than others, but even in places where you would think there was a degree of similarity, say if we look at Europe, you've got the UK, or then you've got the EU. But as you move across the EU going eastwards, uh, attitudes and the whole sort of standards thing changes. Cultural references are different, etc. So yeah, the consistency is a challenge and achieving that, I think does have to start with attitude state change. So you're starting from the same, same like attitudinal baseline as well as the same standard approach. So apart from just some cultural differences when trying to build this framework, what other problems have you faced? I think management is, is the honest answer. If you were based in New York, you ran a global company from New York, and then you put out an edict that said, this is the way we're going to do it. You will do it this way right across the globe. That's a very difficult management cell, frankly. And what we do find is that a lot of people aren't held accountable because they don't see it in the same way. They don't see its priority in the same way, or they have different priorities. It's not necessarily being contrary about it. So actually managing this at a global level is quite difficult, especially where you do need regional variations. And then the language issue comes into play, which can also cause issues and challenges in some cultures. So an example would be in the Middle East, the term they often use is people of determination. Um, when they're talking about disabled people in the UK, we wouldn't use that phrase. We would find it a little bit patronizing perhaps because we're in different places on the journey. So, you know, it's those sorts of things that get in the way. The personal attitudes, understanding and perceptions will cause barriers because attitudes and understanding drives behavior. Are you finding that a lot of businesses are actually going to people with disabilities to talk to them about the accommodations that they believe would help them? Or do you believe that they're more going towards people who aren't actually dealing with these things and who actually know what they might need? It's very difficult to generalize on that, Kendra. Clearly, the people we talk to, we say you must do it is part of the process. Uh, I suspect it's not always part of the process, but you also have to be careful about how you do that, because what you find is, and this is probably going to be a bit controversial, what you find is people with specific disabilities are expert on their disability and the way it impacts them clearly. That doesn't mean to say that they necessarily understand the issues and um, barriers faced by people with different disabilities or even with the same disability in a different context. So the organization then has to try and analyze what they're being told to get to the root causes of the issue. It was um, described to me the other day that if you talk to a room full of disabled people about specific business issues, what you can end up doing is sort of listening and becoming um, interested and focused on their issues. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But of course, it depends on what your sample is like and who's in it as to whether you can interpret that into a valid strategic approach. It's useful, but it's only one strand of the approach is probably what I'm saying. That makes sense. 
Well, I guess if you're trying to make a business case for why companies should be making the workplace more inclusive and accessible, what what are you citing? What are you trying to tell them to convince them that this is how they should be investing? There's a number of strands to this. I think the first one is it avoids the whole hassle of retrofitting. So if you are an employer and you find the best person in the world who's a wheelchair user, if your building doesn't have step-free access with easy navigation around it, access and services, that's going to make it quite problematic. You may have to retrofit. You may have to change where that person works. You may actually end up not offering that person a job or letting them work continually from home. So you don't have that flexibility. That's one reason. You, you have a better uh, access to uh, expertise and a range of things that go on in an organization, a different perspective. You also have a better understanding of the business issues around disability. The more disabled people you, you employ, the better you are at meeting their needs of customers. Clearly, you understand them better, you can deal with them better. So there's a number of that around the recruitment pool. Commercially, clearly, there are advantages related back to that. There are also issues around performance. This is a bit of a stereotype, but if you look at the research, disabled people are less likely to take time off sick, they're less likely to leave a job, um, they're less likely to have a health and safety incident at work. Bit of a generalization, but generally true. Two other issues, PR. Who wants to be the organization that gets pilloried as being inaccessible to disabled people? It's quite powerful, especially with social media. And the last one is legal. Now we have different legal systems. So my understanding in the States is that class actions can be really big and powerful. You can't take class actions in the UK. So the law is slightly harder, but which organization wants to be taken to some sort of legal process because they got this wrong, didn't take it into account, didn't make accommodations, didn't deal with the issue in a proactive way. Thank you. Are there certain accommodations that you're seeing the most of right now? I mean, you said that you're having a lot of calls about people trying to make it inclusive for blind people, mm. but are there, are there particular retrofits that people are just really, really interested in right now and are trying to implement immediately? I think one of the interesting side effects of COVID is it's demonstrated to people the most basic accommodation or adjustment, whichever term you prefer, uh, <clears throat> has been demonstrated to work, working from home, traveling to and from and getting around the workplace for many disabled people has always been problematic. Um, it's now proof that you can do it. Okay, you may have to make some changes, but you know, I know of cases where people are based in different countries and working in, you know, so I've got a colleague who's worked based in Spain, he lives in Spain, but he's, his office is in the UK. So we can prove now that working from home is a valid alternative, not in all circumstances, but in many circumstances. The other exciting thing I think is technology and how technology is facilitating a lot of these changes and will do increasingly, I think. I still think we've got work to do on attitudinal barriers, which is one of the bigger issues, especially globally. Speaking of, how do you think that we resolve or help with that attitude around disabilities? How do we make people look at us as people and not as our disability? 
Uh, <laughs> the $64 million question. Um, <laughs> I think it, there's, no, there's no easy, there's just no easy um, answer to the question. And it will depend on the local culture. So some, some cultures, just because of the way they are, and I'm not making a judgment about this, there will be barriers to education, work and everything else, simply because of the way society, their society deals with disability. In some cultures, it's still seemed as shameful, something not to be discussed, something to be locked away, both literally and metaphorically. In other cultures, it's slightly easier. So one of the interesting things I've noticed in the UK is I have noticed over the years a change in attitudes towards people with disabilities. Not always positive, but a lot of it is. Simply because things develop, things move on. In the UK, people like myself, there are quite a number of people working in this field commercially. We get no government grants. We get no aid in that way. and the number of people working commercially in the field of disability and consultant has significantly increased in the UK. That's not necessarily true in other countries. One of, the, one of the things I did find fascinating to illustrate that point is I was presenting at an EU conference in Croatia and I was talking about my company and what I did and the fact that I was commercial. Afterwards, a banker came up to me from one of the big global banks and he said, so where, how do you get funded? Who gives you a grant to operate? And I said, we don't get any grants for a commercial consultancy like any other consultancy. We rely on our clients to pay us. And he said something very interesting. He said, well, why would they pay you? <laughs> Which I thought was qu quite funny, but also quite telling. So that sort of indicates you know, the, the cultural challenges you face around some of this thing. But clearly, I make a living, uh, as do a number of people I know in this field, because organisations see that they need to pay us. 30 years ago, not so much. There were only one or two people in this field making a living or able to make a living. So culturally and attitudinal, I think things are moving. Whether they move as quickly as we would like is another matter. Uh, one of the things I love about going to America is a lot of the time, this is a terrible generalisation, of course, um, but People treat me as a person, not as a disability. I mean, sometimes they ask me the most weird questions, I have to say, or the most personal questions that in the UK no one would ever dream of asking. But it's never in an aggressive way. It's never about the disability. It's always about the effect or what am I, you know, how do I do this sort of stuff? And it's, it's very upfront. And I like that. I think it's very positive. You have to be, yeah, I suppose there are boundaries. But what I'm <laughs> saying is that over the years, the way that society has dealt with disability has changed. So if you go back to the UK in the 50s and 60s, blind people, when I became blind, they said, well, your career is, do you want to be a piano tuner, Ooh, a telephonist or a typist? That was it. Culturally, that was exactly what I was told. They were your job options, pick one. And I didn't really want to do any of them. That would never happen now. People will be limited, of course, but no one's going to say blind people only do this job. And that's where you see the changes. Are those quick? No. But change is happening. And the same will be true in the US, Europe, UK. So let's make those attitudes happen quicker, change those attitudes quicker, I guess. But 
Yeah, things have moved. Do you believe that social media has helped to change attitudes around disability as it's no longer something that can just be brushed under the carpet? We're now, we're, we're very, we're visible. We are telling our stories and showing that we are capable. Do you think that is impacting the change of attitudes? It can do, but it can also be quite negative. Some research in the UK a few years ago, 25% of people in the UK think disabled people are benefit scroungers. On the other hand, yes, the issues are talked about much more. There's some very good stuff going on on social media and all the other stuff, but it's a two-edged sword. Social media always is, in my view, in this area. So you'll get someone saying, look at this, this is amazing. Uh, and then you'll get someone criticizing it or being horrible about it. And it's not always non-disabled people. Some, you know, some disabled people have different views to each other, clearly. And the way they package and present can be quite difficult. So how can I illustrate that? On, on a personal level, I'm just not interested particularly about the language of disability, which is probably a shocking thing to say. On a personal level, I'm not bothered. What I am bothered about is the way people use language in terms of their intention, what they're trying to do. If they're trying to provoke me, they probably will. But if someone calls me a blind person, severely sight impaired, visually impaired or disabled, it really doesn't bother me. Uh, I'd rather have a conversation. Whereas I know some disabled people who believe that it's a really important issue and probably more important than anything else. I just don't go for it. But all of that is reflected in social media. So it, it can raise as many questions as it deals with. But the discussion at least is being had, which I think is important. Thank you. Some great insights. My last question is, where... Where do you see us in terms of accessibility and inclusion within the next five to 10 years? Do you see that conversation just continuing to grow? Do you see more of disabled people actually being part of the workforce? I think that the first question is to understand is how many people are disabled people are in the workforce? And those numbers are quite often underrepresented. And the question for me is why? And why aren't people who have a disability at work talking about it? And I think there's a cultural issue there. Will things improve? They will change and they will develop. Where they will change and develop, I think, is the problem on a global basis, or the challenge, I guess, rather. So in the UK, and probably in America, is you're building up a head of steam. There's becoming a degree of self-motivation, self-fulfilling prophecy about this. So the more people there are like me doing the job I do, the more people come up underneath me to do the same job, the more people influence others. So you get that sort of weight of momentum. And I think that will continue. In some cultures, it won't change that easily because where they are on the journey is some way, somewhere different from where we are now, if that makes sense. So I think it's going to be gradual. I think it's going to be patchy. And some places are going to do it with a lot more ease than others. I think everyone will be moving forward, but the speed is gonna be different. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been great, Kendra, thank you. I hope people have found it useful. I'm sure they will. I know this is definitely a topic a lot of our membership is really interested in. Well, thank you. And if there's anything else I can do, please just let me know. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.